Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I would ask you this morning to, uh, what does the number 150 mean to you? 150. Now, if it had a dollar sign attached to it, and you found that lying in the parking lot somewhere, you would probably say, what a blessing. You know, $150 laid in the parking lot, nobody would turn that down. Um, In Georgia, 150 is a highway over close to Augusta. If 150 refers to the number of yards that your running back rushed yesterday, then you're probably feeling pretty good today. Um, 150, though, is referred to by psychologists and sociologists as Dunbar's number. Keep that in mind, Dunbar's number. And, and what that means, social scientists say that 150 is the maximum size of a functional social network for human beings. Now, that's not to say that you can't recognize more than 150 or that you're not familiar with more than 150. If you're plugged into a church of any size, then, then the likelihood is, is you can, you can run off pretty quickly more than 150 people. But what it says is, is that instead of being familiar, that you would not be able to maintain relationships in which you contribute your physical and emotional time to the well-being of more than that number. That's one of the reasons that if you were to just look at churches around the South, you would find that the most common-sized church service is about 150 folks gathering for a worship service because that's the number where we're most comfortable maintaining a network. When churches get larger than that, then we have to be more creative, and Sunday school classes become more important in helping us maintain connection. That's why Sunday school is so important here, because it helps you maintain a connection with a smaller group of people. Um, If you think about it, if you think about that 150 people that might show up on your list, obviously you're not very close to 150 people. These are acquaintances. If you had a Christmas party at your house and you had 150 people who came to your house, I would like to know how big your house is, first of all. But these 150 folks are not, are not close friends. They're acquaintances. If someone in that group were to pass away, uh, you, if you were compassionate, you'd likely visit the funeral home. But your grief probably wouldn't be too extreme. But within that group of 150 people, if you begin to draw tighter and tighter circles within that group of people, those tighter circles have greater access to your life. When you think about your closest friends, we're actually left with a number that's much smaller, actually just 10% of the total. Most people only have close friends that number somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15. This is often called by social scientists the sympathy circle. These are people that if there's a tragedy, they're showing up at your house. You can get 15 folks in there. They're going to be there. If there's a a death, if there's an illness, if something happens, those 15 people are going to be the ones who are right there in your home. We'll shrink that number down even smaller, and we come to a number of about five. Five is the, those are the folks you call first. 
when there's good news, when there's something that you want to share. These are the people that you interact with by choice on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. If you were to look at your friendships, your relationships as an investment, you're investing about 40% of your capital on those five key relationships. Now, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we see a very similar breakdown with Jesus' ministry. He was particularly close to three, Peter, James, and John. He had 12 intimate disciples that he dealt with on a daily basis. But we know that there was a group larger than just the 12. There were more companions. Some were named, some were not. People like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were not part of that, that inner group of disciples, but they were friends with Jesus. Jesus was there when Lazarus died, and he was there when Lazarus came back from the dead. So we see Jesus having many companions that he didn't necessarily deal with on a regular basis. You know, what's, what's most interesting about these numbers is that we are living in a day and time where people are more connected than ever before. As a matter of fact, somebody's texting me now. Well, hold on. Okay, it was nothing. Um, this is good that we're connected, but it's also, it's also dangerous. Think about all the old flames that are sparked through Facebook connections. You know, the average number of Facebook friends, this is astonishing, 338. Some of you are looking, you're wanting to look right now and see how many friends have I got. Go ahead and scratch that itch because you're not going to be able to pay attention the rest of the service till you, till you can see how many you got. The average number is 338. That's more than double Dunbar's number. He says you can only really manage 150 acquaintances well. What's interesting is, though, is while we are connected... The fact of the matter is that people today are more isolated and lonely than ever before. According to the Census Bureau, 25% of all adults live by themselves. Loneliness, social isolation, they tell us, could be as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The trend, you can see, it's very easy to spot we are sacrificing real, meaningful human relationships for the facade of digital popularity that we are finding in our social media feeds. Now, you can test this. Go to lunch today and look around the restaurant. If you could put your phone down long enough, look around the restaurant where you're sitting to have lunch and see how many people are sitting at the table. Everyone at the table is doing this. Sitting at the table. I dare say some of them are even texting people across the table. But you will find more and more that people are in public, in, in, in areas where they're to be interacting with other folks, and their interactions are like this. The other night we, were, we went to a bowling alley, and as the, uh, the, the, the game was going on, there was a group of ladies that walked in, and one of them had a, a crown on and a sash, and so I knew that there was a bachelorette party that was there at the bowling alley. Um, and one of the things that I was, I was noticing as I was, as I was looking at these young ladies who were getting ready to bowl is that it was almost like a photo shoot. 
I mean, they were posing with the bowling ball, and they were, they were posing everything, and everything was staged. And they spent 15 minutes taking pictures of themselves, getting ready to bowl before they ever threw the first ball. And I thought, what life is this where we are, we're, we really are truly living in a day where there is a double life for people, for just about everybody under 40. There is the real life, and then there is the life that is lived through the isolation of a phone screen. And that's a sad commentary on where we are. We've, we've laid down real, meaningful human relationships at the altar of little red bubbles and likes and thumbs up and hearts. We're left with an important question. While we may boast that we have an average of 338 friends on the Internet, who do we actually have community with? Who do we actually connect with? You know, as we look at Moses' life, that's certainly one of the things that stands out to me. He was in the center of a nation that was vast. I bet it was a lonely place to be, though. He didn't have a phone to play with. There are days he probably wishes he did. You know, there's some characters whose names are mentioned from time to time. Joshua, his siblings, Aaron and Miriam. But more often than not, it feels like Moses is all alone. This is frequently true for leaders. No real community, no close friends. you got to wonder how in the world Moses held it together as well as he did. Well, this morning I'd like us to turn our attention to the Scriptures. In Exodus chapter 33, we'll begin reading in verse 7. If you've got your place in God's Word and you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word? Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Father, thank you for Moses. Thank you for speaking to him as a friend. God, I pray that we might understand something of how we can be friends of God today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. 
We pick up in chapter 33 after the golden calf incident. And the golden calf incident was an absolute disaster. From Aaron's failure to lead to, to in, in the absence of Moses and Joshua to the people's willingness to worship a golden image that they had themselves helped create by contributing their earrings to its creation. And now the punishment was severe. 3,000 unrepentant Israelites met capital punishment as a consequence of their sins. Plus, we're told that there was a plague that was sent as a punishment to the nation. And God picks up here in chapter 33, and he, he tells the nation to go ahead and leave Mount Sinai, but he says he would not go with them because of their wickedness. Now, this news is not very well received. But something interesting happens as a result. Back in chapter 33, verses 5 and 6, we read these words. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The people took off their ornaments. They didn't put them back on again. What are the ornaments? That's all the decorations that they had picked up as they looted the Egyptians on the way out. They themselves looked like Egyptians as they had taken on the earrings and the necklaces and the pendants and the bangles and the jewelry of all the Egyptians. And so these former slaves were living in the bounty of the Egyptians that they had stolen from. And so they looked literally like Egyptians in the wilderness. Yet in this moment, God said, get rid of all that stuff. And the Israelites say, we're going to get rid of this stuff. And they never again put on their ornaments. This is important because they have broken their ties with their Egyptian past and are finally beginning to come into their own as the people of God. However, as important a place as this is, there is still work to be done. There is, there is still things that need to happen to get these people to where they need to be. When Moses wasn't on the mountain. We're told that he erected what he called the tent of meeting here in chapter 33. Now, this is easy to get confused because the tent of meeting also refers to the tabernacle, which was that mobile temple that God gave Moses instructions for. The tabernacle had not yet been built. And so this tent of meeting was, was sort of a temporary place. It was a mobile meeting place where the Lord would come and talk to Moses and Joshua. It was a place where anyone who sought the Lord could come and listen. You'll notice it's called a place that's far outside the camp <laughs> because the camp was so seriously defiled. God's holiness would not come into the midst of the mess of the camp at this time. But it's at this tent of meeting that we can begin to understand just how Moses kept it together as well as he did. We're told something profound in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You know, there aren't many people in the Old Testament who were given that prestigious title. Abraham was described as a, God, as a friend of God in, in several places. 
But the only other person to get close to this title is Moses. And even Moses isn't directly called a friend of God. We have to do some, some logical reasoning to get to that place. Because here, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So using some logic, we can extrapolate that since they talk face to face as friends talk, then they must also be friends. Okay? So Moses, we can, we can discern that Moses is considered God's friend. Now, if you don't have a friend to be found among a nation that's made up of a couple million people, I guess it's good to have friends in high places. Have you ever considered what it means to be a friend of God? I mean, who among us would not want would not rest better knowing that God's on our side. God's in our court, right? He's in the stands. He's pulling for us. He's, he's, he's for us, not against us. That should give us all peace. Should help us to sleep a little bit better. But it's more than that. You know, a friend is someone that you can be completely honest with. Somebody who, who knows you, they love you, they accept you for who you are, not who you want them to think you are. Think seriously about this. Are we sure we want to be friends with one so much greater than we are? One who sees all our flaws, one who knows all of our sins, and one who understands all of our thoughts. Are we sure we want to be friends with somebody who isn't afraid of hurting our feelings? Because listen, God's not afraid to hurt your feelings. God's not afraid to hurt your feelings. Are we sure we want to be friends with somebody who, who speaks the brutal, honest truth to us? These human relationships are somewhat precarious, right? You, you don't want to speak the brutal, honest truth because you know how fragile human relationships can be, but God's not afraid to speak the brutal, honest truth to us. If you're doing something dumb, God ain't scared to tell you you're doing something dumb. I'm scared to tell people that sometimes. Caesar say, I told you so, then don't do that. Think about what it means to have God as a, as a friend. You know, it's safe to say becoming friends with the Almighty is not for the faint of heart. But to have that friend on your side, the friend who will never leave, the friend who is bigger than all the bullies, the friend whose shoulders are infinitely large enough for you to cry on and hold all of your tears. The friend whose back is infinitely strong enough to carry all your burdens. It's a good friend to have. It may be dangerous to have that friend, not because it will harm us, but because it will refine us. And let's be honest. That's a friendship we all need. But aren't we all friends of God? Isn't friendship a title that we get? We're children of God. We're, we're sons and daughters of God. We're, we're sanctified. We're born again. Are we all friends of God? Isn't that how this works? Keep in mind some things. First of all is this. None of us start out 
as God's friends. Luther said you have to understand God as an enemy before you can ever understand him as a friend. In fact, the Bible says that we are God's enemies. But God has offered to us the hand of friendship by making peace with us through the cross. It's only when we come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we repent of our sins, that we begin to become God's friend. But as we understand something of friendship, we understand that friendship is developed. It's not bestowed. I could go up to a stranger on the street and declare to the stranger, you are my friend. But that doesn't automatically mean that he joins my network of 338 social media buddies. Doesn't mean anything, as a matter of fact. If I simply declare, you are my friend, in John 15, 15, Jesus says to the 11 disciples after Judas Iscariot had left to betray him, he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. One of the things you'll notice in the Bible, is that friendship and servanthood tend to go hand in hand. Jesus' disciples were his servants, but eventually became his friends. Moses is described as a friend in Exodus chapter 33, but over just a couple of books in Joshua chapter 1, God's word to Joshua is that Moses, my servant, is dead. At his death, Moses is remembered not as God's friend, but as God's servant. We also recognize Jesus' words in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. This friendship is developed through servanthood. One of our mistakes in thinking about friendship with God is that we sometimes can make the mistake of thinking that it's a friendship of equals. But friends, that's not the case. What makes our relationship with the Lord so incredible is that He invites us to friendship. He, he could have kept us at arm's distance, but God chose to bring us in and embrace us. He could have simply called us His servants. In fact... Who among us would not want the benediction of our lives when we stand before the Lord to be those words? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Listen, if he says that, that's great. If he looks at me and says, well done, good friend, <laughs> I'll take it too. We long for that benediction of our lives. The question is, how do we cultivate a divine friendship? Well, first, by faith. Remember, we are enemies of God without God's intervention. None of us become friends of God naturally. Our natural state is at enmity with God. And so God has intervened. He has given us a gift of salvation. He has invited us to be his friends. He's extended a hand to us and has invited us through the cross. We only receive the gift through faith. 
Secondly, like any good friendship, that friendship is cultivated through communication. Name me a friendship that thrives in silence. Name me any relationship that thrives in silence. Now, you maybe can name some relationships that are better off if everybody just be quiet. I don't think those are the relationships we're looking for. Name a, friend, name a friendship or a relationship that thrives in silence. All of our relationships, our friendships are worked out through communication, and it's true for God as well. Our, our friendship with God is not a one-way street where we talk and He listens. God has spoken to us. If you spend time in the Word of God, you'll understand what He has to say. And what He has said will help to drive what you say to Him. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's the nature of communication. Where people play off of one another's statements, one another's words. A conversation develops. I don't set out to have a conversation and have every step of the conversation planned. The conversation develops because I'm interacting with the words that have been spoken to me. That is a divine conversation. When we communicate with God, we are responding to words that He has given to us. Thirdly, that friendship is cultivated by serving. You know, God has served us. He has done something for us that no one could do on our behalf. He has served us by bringing us salvation through the cross. He has served us, and he has the expectation that we would continue to serve him. When Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends, it didn't mean that they were off the hook to serve him. Like, finally, we're freed. It didn't change that. It didn't change that at all. It should continue to be our aim, our goal, our desire to serve the Almighty. And as we cultivate this friendship by faith and communication and serving, we finally recognize the need to cultivate it with time. There's a little tagline at the end of the passage that I read that I think gets overlooked a lot. I love what, what it says about Joshua at the end of verse 11. When Moses was through talking, when the conversation was over, he would leave the tent. But his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Why is he, why is he hanging out? I think it's guard duty, make sure nobody else shows up in the tent of meeting. I'm pretty sure that none of the Israelites thought they could go there. You don't show up where God doesn't invite you. They've learned that through some hard knocks here. So I don't think it's guard duty. I don't think he's in there cleaning up. You know, he's not got taking a broom and a dustpan in there to, to sweep up the tent. That's not what he's doing. Joshua is lingering because he longs for the relationship with God that Moses has. He sees Moses talking to God. Joshua has first, I mean, front row seats to this interaction. And when Moses is done, I can picture Joshua just pulling up a seat in the tent and just basking, just soaking it all in. 
because Moses has modeled for this young man what it means to be a friend of God. That friendship is cultivated through time. That's true for our friendships, too. If you're friends with folks, you want to spend time with them. You have them over to your house. You go do things together. Hopefully you're not trying to capture every moment for Instagram, but you actually interact with each other. Time. You know, I wonder. I wonder if we are doing like Moses. That we are modeling for a younger generation what it means to be friends with God. Are we living a life of faith to the point that those who are coming behind us would kind of like to just sit and bask in the glory of that interaction? One of my dear mentors in ministry always tells a story of his daddy praying him into the kingdom. Lived out in the country, and he said his dad would go out in the field in between the corn rows and he would pray for his son. And my mentor would listen to those prayers. And his dad would never know that he was an earshot, or, or maybe he did. Doesn't matter. But when he finished his prayers, he'd get up to leave. And there between the cornrows would be a puddle of tears that had turned into mud. My mentor would go and he would kneel down in that spot in the cornrows in that place where his daddy had prayed him into the kingdom. Joshua would stay in the tent because he wanted the friendship with God that Moses had. I wonder, are we creating a place of faith where our children and grandchildren want to have the experience that we have. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.